Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hello. If you search for the words cricket and food together, you'll get a list of benefits of eating insects. So if you've tuned in for a show about those kind of crickets, so I'm sorry, you'll be disappointed. We'll be talking about the sport of cricket with Jared Kimber. And Jared is a man who's done pretty much everything in cricket. He's an analyst, podcaster, YouTuber, writer, filmmaker. He's also managed a team in the past. Welcome to the Naan Curry Podcast, Jared. No worries. Thanks for having me on. And for those listening to this on Red Inker, I'm Arshit. I'm one half of the Naan Curry podcast, an Indian food podcast that talks about not just food, but economics, history, nutrition, culture. And I'm also an unbiased cricket fan, as those on YouTube can see from what I'm wearing. <laughs> Jared, I have to first address the elephant in the room. Cricket is probably the only sport where there is a tea break and a lunch break. It's so weird. Whenever I tell my European or American friends about it, they take the sport less seriously and I feel a bit bad. So if you wear your cricket historian hat, can you tell us what are the origins of this practice? Yeah, I mean, it just goes back to the beginning of the game where they would play. I think they, I think originally they played in, you know, very, it wasn't two hours break, two hours break the way that we play now, but it was still, you would start in the morning and you would finish in the late afternoon, right? They were playing essentially when they began uh, to the hours of England. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in England, but the daylight hours in summer are quite long. You know, the, the sun is out for a long time in England. And I think they found pretty early on that it didn't really make sense to play all the way through. I think if it was a sport trying to think of the best way of putting it. I think if it was a sport that was played, like when it was played as a street game, I don't think they were stopping for meals, right? I think the meals really come in when the aristocrats come in, specifically around that 1730 to 1800 era. It tells you how far we're going back. <laughs> when, you know, 150 years before our subsports were invented, right? So it comes back to that era when it becomes a bit of a game of earls and dukes and lords, and all, all those sorts of people. And a lot of them were playing. So you could tell a young professional to keep playing for seven hours. I'm paying you. You'll eat at the end of the day. Eat a big breakfast, eat at the end of the day. I don't think you could tell, you know, the Earl of Wessex, for instance, that he's not going to be able to stop for a break. 
And the other thing is that these people were running their own games, right? It wasn't like they were fitting into a professional structure. <laughs> they were like, come to my castle and play this game or come to my village and play this game. And so I think those things were just baked into the fact that the game was being played over anywhere from five to seven, eight, nine hours on a day, depending on what was happening in the particular game or what the, uh, the schedule was for those games. And so it made sense to stop. And so even it's quite interesting, like I played a lot of, they call it jazz hat cricket in the UK, which is where you play with a bunch of people who are so rich or famous that they have, you know, the midweek, they could just take a day off. And still to this day in England, the biggest thing is usually the lunch. So there's a game at Wormsley that we play, which is, so Wormsley is owned by the Getty family. So Jean-Paul Getty, Mark, Mark Getty, who's an important person in cricket. But, you know, if you've ever looked at a photo in a newspaper, it's probably a Getty photo, you know, very rich yeah. uh, family. They decided to get into cricket because I can't remember one of the Gettys, I think the one who was a heroin addict, um, <laughs> met Mick Jagger um, and became a big cricket fan. And so they built their own old school ground just outside of London. And really, it's really just, it's a beautiful ground set, you know, uh, set into like a little peak a valley, uh, you know, um, sort of area just off the back of their mansion or mansions probably. And the reason that so many people go and play in that game is because of the food and the alcohol and everything else. And so that is, and, and you see little games like this all the way through England still. There are still a lot of them, you know, the authors of 11 play a lot of these sorts of games. The MCC play a lot of these sorts of games. And the food and the alcohol are part of the game, right? It is, it's not, it's not separate. And you can see that coming all the way through from 1750, that's what it would have been like in those days. You, you, know, you would have stopped, you would have had a proper meal. Um, in some cases, you know, we now have a 40-minute lunch break, so the players have to scarf down their lunch a little bit more. But in the old days, they might have had an hour, hour and a half, two hours, right? Like a liquid lunch for someone in an office. You would stop and you would do that. So it's always been part of the game, partly because of the length, but also because of the sorts of people who played it. And a lot of cricket is shaped by the fact that very, very rich aristocratic people who couldn't be told what to do ran their own cricket games and they decided what hours they would play. If they wanted to sleep in, the game started at 1pm, right? That's that's how all those sorts of things happened in those days. And, uh, you know, cricket is a game that is sort of, it holds on to some of those traditions while professionalizing them a little bit. But if you're a fast bowler and we don't allow players to go off the field, it would be very hard to bowl fast at the end of the day if you didn't stop some stage during that six hours and recarb or recarb, re- reload food. We don't eat carbs anymore in cricket, but when we, uh, you know, when uh, you know, go off the ground and get some food. I mean, it just would be so that always would have had to have been a break, and we just made it a bit more formal. Of course, the hilarious thing now is that we have day night test matches where you stop in the middle of the game for a situation where, <laughs> for a situation where we don't cut, we we swip. We swapped lunch and tea around, um, and the whole thing is just completely confusing to any cricket fan. And limited overs games, when the overs go late, sometimes you'll see players take food out in their pockets. Um, so there's a fun one for you. There's a great photo of an Australian cricketer, Nick Maddinson, with a whole um, toasted sandwich in his pocket out in the field. So that does happen from time to time. Usually it's protein bars and, you know, <laughs> slightly more professional than a toasted sandwich. But I've certainly seen players out on the field with, with food before um, because the break wasn't long enough and they need to go out there and field. Has someone checked if toasted sandwiches can uh, shine the ball? Well, I would have thought they were pretty greasy. 
um, yeah. all things considered. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on where that goes. But, but yeah, no, there's been a few players. I think if you, I think if you put photo, if, maybe if you search for uh, cricketers eating on the field, you'll probably see a couple of cool little images of players, you know, sniffing some, you know, uh, a lot of players also, a lot of batters will have a banana or something. Um, yeah. In fact, I just covered England and Bangladesh in the T20 in the one days, and I was shocked to see. It's the only time I've ever seen this before. At the drinks break, the first person to run out was a person with a fruit platter. Yeah, um, I saw the same thing in the India-Australia series. I, I saw a bowl of uh, a tray of watermelon being carried over in the drinks break. So it's becoming a big thing in cricket that I'd yeah. never seen before. Um, and that's, a, that's very new. I, th- I think it comes from Asian cricket culture, which is weird because in, in Australia and probably New Zealand and South Africa, you eat fruit, but you eat it off the ground. Uh, when you're at the game, whereas now it's being brought on. Even if you go back a long time, I think Ricky Ponting was a player who quite often would have a banana out on the field. And, you know, there's a few other players who did as well. So it's always been a bit of a thing. So, yeah, that's why they do it. It's They have to be out there for a very long time is the, the very simple answer. And the more like cricket... Most answers come back to very rich people didn't want to do as much work, so they decided to have two meal breaks in the middle of their day. <laughs> so if you had to redesign the game of test cricket, and I, I know you love asking these questions to yourself, would you still keep similar meal breaks or would you change it up a, a little bit? It, it, the tricky bit is for batters, I think, yeah. because you can actually, the bowlers in the fielders should be allowed to come on, on and off the field, but we've we've come up with a sport where you're not really allowed to do that, although a lot of teams find ways to ch- cheat those those rules when they can. But yeah, I think I think this, the 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 batters are the tricky one because if you bat an entire day of a test match, you have to stop to eat at one stage. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I'm not a big uh, cycling fan, so I don't know how the Tour de France, uh, 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 you know, do those sorts of things. But I would assume that there are times of the day when they have to eat or they can eat when they're out in the middle. That would be a little bit trickier for a, a test batter. But for everyone else, we don't really need the break anymore. A lot of the break is it's now – so. This happens more in the Western countries, certainly England and Australia. Some of the other countries are a bit more flexible with this. But West, in England and Australia, there's so much um, uh, corporate stuff that is done around the lunch break. Really? So you will see that the lunch break is quite often never moved. And that is because the chefs have got all the food ready for lunch for all the, uh, the, the big boxes and everything. Right. That they can't shift it around. And it's worth ah. so much money to them. So if you think some of these boxes, some of these people are probably paying, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars for a box for uh, for one day of a test, or, or wow. you know, if they have it for a year, maybe it's a little bit different. They get a discount, or if they had it for five years, but they're spending a lot of money. They've got private catering, and all, there's all these chefs. There's usually one head chef, and there's a bunch of different chefs around the ground who are basically making decisions. You know. As you would, you know, it's no no different than catering for a wedding. If someone suddenly told you to do the wedding and had to move by an hour, you'd be like, no, no, no. No. The food goes here at this time. Uh, especially, you know, again, you know, we know that with uh, Asian food, you can probably keep it in pots and everything and tiffins and it's fine. Whereas, you know, that maybe doesn't work for a steak. Well, it certainly yeah. doesn't work for a steak. And maybe yeah. doesn't work for a lobster and those sorts of things. And you'd be shocked to know that's the sort of thing they're, they're doing. So it is... That lunch is now, especially at the major cricket venues, a very big part of how they sell that to corporate um, uh, clients. And it's a huge thing. So much so that, you know, in places like Adelaide, which has brilliant food, places like Lords, have a look after lunch. The crowd is smaller, right? People don't even come back. You know, I, th- there's one of, the, one of the places where I get a very special lunch is every time I'm at the MCG, they, um, 
they allow me to have one um, dinner at the uh, at one of the the fancy areas of the MCG, which is I think it's the committee room that that I get to go into. And even if the test match is really close or exciting, you've got waiters bringing you beer, right? You've got a three course meal. Um, the food's incredible. All the plates are, you know, monogrammed with the MCG logos and all this sort of stuff. There's even a toilet at the committee room where you can have a wee and watch the game at the same time. Wow. It's very hard to drag yourself back to the press box and cover the game, <laughs> right? It's like, you know, if someone's coming out, would you, you know, would you like me to butter your roll, sir, and all that sort of stuff. So if yeah. you think of those corporates, that's what they're having. And you can imagine what, and it is part of the entire thing, right, of the, the fancy food, the cutlery. A lot of those, this isn't in every ground in the world, but there are a lot of grounds that have, what they have is uh, like a viewing area for the corporates, you know, usually on the second or third row. And then at the back, they have like a you know, dining table. Right. And, you know, you, you have your own personal attendant who helps you out and everything else. I don't know how we move back from that in a um, in a test match in order to have a, a shorter break. That actually, one of the funny ones, of course, is the at the IPL games, you can't drink. You can't drink alcohol in the ground. And yeah. uh, some of the grounds you can't eat food in. You know, there's lots of weird rules when it comes to Indian grounds and food and bringing other things in. But, Wait, I've had alcohol during an IPL match, but it, it's not it was not inside. It was inside the IP box. It was not outside in the back. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you can do it as long as no one can see it. So what I was going to say yeah. is there's yeah. always a room or rooms. So at Bangalore, at the stadium there, there's a great uh, – Chinnaswamy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a great back room at either end of the ground where it's like a free-for-all for alcohol and food and everything else. And if you get a VIP ticket or you pay or you've got a corporate ticket, you can go in. They've got the TVs around the ground. Again, it's part of the thing. You, you go in there. I remember, you know, being, uh, you know, it must have been part of ESPN. We, we were given VIP tickets. Um, I think we had an American guest over, so they, they looked after us. And, you know, they took us back into this big room with food and drink. And there were a lot of people who never left that room throughout the game. So it is part of cricket in a way that perhaps the only other sport you would say is maybe tennis. And that's not as much for the athletes, but certainly as much for the fans um, in that, you know, the food and uh, the alcohol is part of the entire structure of, of what it is. So it's right. um, it's so in, entrenched in it. But yeah, if you're going to play it again, you would only, you probably have one break of half an hour. So you play three hours of cricket, have a break and then play three hours of cricket. If you were just, if you're talking about test cricket, that is how you would design it. And you would also allow for anyone who batted more than 30 overs to have a longer or, or you know, um, or did something strenuous in the field to have a longer break in a one day or a T20 game where they don't have to come back onto the field and they can actually eat. Generally in T20 games, you actually, uh, the players anyway, eat very, very late at night. So you eat after the game. So that's when you get, you ha you have like a late lunch before you get to the ground. Um, and then you play the game and then afterwards they put on a full spread for the players. Yeah. Yeah. I, you see it in the IPL and the social media posts of the teams where, for example, Mumbai Indians is giving a dressing room award to a player and, in the background, everybody's having a bite in the dressing room. Yeah, it's, it's just the way the hours work on that game because we don't yeah. have the same amount of break, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you, you're trying to get through. It's really hard. Like, it's a... It's a quite a late dinner sometimes. Like if, if you some of those games finish 11, 11, 30, 12. I, play, I was in the CPL. Some of the games were finishing at like 12, 31, you know. And then you, if you eat, you're up for a couple of hours afterwards. Um, yeah. Plus you've got the adrenaline of the game and everything else. But you might have a 6 a.m. Yeah. flight the next day. So the whole thing, it's a very, very confused thing. But yeah, that, that's, what, that's how they do it in, in T20. Most international grounds, 
will have food available for players at the close of play or a franchise or, or international just because someone's going to need to eat, right? So right. You know, it may not be everyone and it may not be their best food. There'll usually be something available for someone just because you come, you know, someone's going to come in and just need to eat straight away. Some yeah. players just pick at it and, and whatever. Some play, you know, at the end of a test day, there might be food there, but you're more, more likely to go out and go for dinner because it's, you know, 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. So you'll go out for dinner um, and do it that way. But other players might just come off the field. If you've bowled, 30 overs, you know, you might just need to have something to eat at the ground. Yeah. Do you think uh, stadiums have become more accommodative of, of other food cultures? Now, for example, I think a few years back, Ishan Sharma, who's a vegetarian, he couldn't find any vegetarian food in the middle of a test match. And apparently, I don't know if it's a myth, he actually went outside the ground in between a test match to uh, get food. So do you see with BCCI's power growing, do you see that changing in global tours for Indian for the Indian team? So I can tell you that story a lot better if you'd like to hear the full story. Yeah, of course. The Gabba has shit food. Right? Okay. It's important to know that, that there are grounds for good food, there are grounds for bad food. Um, SCG in Adelaide Oval in Australia, bring it food. Hobart can sometimes be good or sometimes be terrible. Whack when you say, when you say, sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt you. When you say good food, bad food, terrible food, do you mean for the players, for the crowd, or for press? I'm usually talking about the food that is made for corporates, for for the players, and for press, which okay. is not always the same people, but. More all often right. than not, is a similar kind of people that make yeah. all those different things. There are uh, variants on that. Lords has, you know, um, a different chef, and now sometimes with sometimes um, teams will get chefs in. So, okay. the Gabba is notorious for having bad food. Yes, um, for whatever reason, I don't know why. Quit. I wouldn't say that Queensland has a foodie culture, maybe the way that some of the other cities do, but mm-hmm. I don't know if that's got something to do with it. But it's always had bad food, and. Um, I remember Harsha Bogle was in front of me one day and he was looking at the vegetarian options and she's going, this is terrible. (laughs) So it wasn't that they didn't have vegetarian options. It was that the vegetarians were saying, this food stinks. And I I remember, I can't remember, there might have been another Indian person I was talking to as well, just saying, you know, explaining to me why it was a bad option. I can't remember the full details of why. So anyway, Ishan Sharma says, I'm not eating this anymore, right? And so there's two Indian restaurants on either side of the cafe, right? Oh. Weirdly enough, and I don't know, I still don't know why to this day, but Ishan Sharma didn't go to the one that was like right outside his door. I think he went to the one on the other side of the cafe. So he had to get a security guard to go with him and, and obviously someone from the team. You're not really supposed to go from the ground unless you're injured. But yeah. he did and he just walked out. And so... People walked, so they walked all the way around to the other side of the ground. He got his food. He then brought it back. But the Gabba has a strict no eat, no um, outside food being brought into the ground rule. So Ishan Sharma oh. wasn't allowed to bring his food back in. So not only did they serve him bad food, they then wouldn't let him bring better food into the ground. Oh. Um, uh, yeah, so to be fair to them, that, they did have it. From there on in, in fact, quite often they will get a um, – especially for Indian tests, and I'm not sure if they've ever done this for Pakistan as well, but I know for Indian tests at times, they've actually got the Indian chefs, uh, an Indian chef who has served the Indian team before to come over yeah. Yeah. Uh, and make the food the way that they want it rather than doing a Western version of, of Asian food. Yeah. Um, but last time, I think, I don't know if it was last time or the time before, the Indian players still complained and Cricket Australia were like, it's your chef. Like, it's literally a chef that the BCCI suggested. Like, wh- what more can we do at this point? So, Are you talking about the- Sandwich Gate? No, 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 no. 
No, Sandwichgate was something else. But that, oh, actually, it was involving Sandwichgate, yes. But it was more than that. They were complaining about the quality of the food altogether. Okay. Um, and there was certainly a chef that came over. Um, no, there's been some really embarrassing ones over the years. Bangladesh under-19 team to New Zealand, and they were um, offered ham sandwiches, which you can imagine uh, with a largely Muslim team yeah. probably didn't yeah. go down particularly well. There's been yeah. a few versions of that, you know, variations on a theme of that, again, you know, there certainly have been um, international grounds where there's been no vegetarian option. You know, it's not that's not something that happens anymore just because players all from around the world are vegetarian. But before, when it was largely India that were vegetarian, everyone else wasn't. Or the option of a vegetarian is a potato, right? There's certainly um, some cases of that before. Um, yeah. It's a lot different now over the last few years. As I said, Australia getting a chef from India. You had England actually send through a dietary guide to in, to Australia in 2013-2014. You do get teams now that sometimes travel with their own chefs. Like um, England did. Yeah, in England Pakistan. have done that. Um, you have um, situations where quite often the teams will start to light the food from a hotel. Mm-hmm. And so the hotel chef will be um, seconded to the test match for the period ah. of the game. I think that's happened in Pakistan, but I think that's happened in India before as well. Um, it might have even happened in Australia at one stage where the chef was so good at a particular hotel. It's a bit, it happens more at Asia because, as you know, some of the chefs um, at hotels in Asia are, you know, ridiculous. You know, those five-star resorts are yeah. the best chefs in the country already. Yeah. So yeah. That's a yeah. little bit different um, yeah. from, what, from what you get a, in other places. But, yeah, those sorts of things happen. Uh, but teams are just a lot better now at asking for what they want. And that was, that was one of, you know, I'm not, I'm not forgiving. I think it was down in Hamilton or somewhere, probably slagged off Hamilton, but I was somewhere down there. <laughs> But if you're a team and you have diet, dietary requirements, you shouldn't be waiting to see what is served and then complaining, right? Like, it, you know, if, if there's a player, you know, um, I'm trying to think, there's been a couple of vegan players at, from outside of Indian teams. Like, the, yeah. the, opposite, the, um, the people need to know, right? Like you need to know if someone's, you know, got a nut allergy or, or any of these things, you have to be quite strict. And I think beforehand it was more you would turn up and then you would work it out on your own. Things are certainly changing from that aspect when it comes to teams, partly just because dietitians are involved right now. And so, you know, if you look at that 2013, 2014 list um, of that England sent over, that was like, it was, it was at the height of the superfoods fad, right? So everything was, um, was it Kinia? Uh, is it Kinia? Quinoa. So quinoa. 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 Yeah. Quinoa yeah. and kale and yeah, every yeah. green superfood that you could think of was like in that list. Yeah. And that's very different to Shane Warne making a joke about going to India and not being able to eat the food and baked beans sending over a, a, a pallet of baked beans to him, which apparently Shane Warne didn't even – they had nothing to do with, right? They just turned up and he just yeah. took a small wedge of it for himself and I think the rest was given to charity. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's a huge difference from those days where you would have to turn up and work it out. And there's certainly a lot of cricketers who have – there are a lot of white cricketers in Asia who – literally only eat anything from the hotels and it's usually just toasted sandwiches. And there are a lot of Asian cricketers who also don't, you know, who bring food in from, you know, from the hotel um, because they don't know what they're going to get at the grounds. So those are the things in 2023 that shouldn't be happening anymore. But certainly throughout the history of cricket, that's quite common that, you know, people would do that. Um, I've seen a few players when I first started, I'm trying to remember if I might have been on the Sri Lanka tour. There's a lot of New Zealand players that would go out and they would eat their breakfast and then they would grab just all the fruit. From the, from the fruit display and take it to the yeah. ground just because it was a bit of a random um, uh, venue. I can't remember where we were. We were in the middle of um, 
Uh, where the um, Roger Paksa is from, where he built one of his new stadiums, I think, the former prime minister or president of, of Sri Lanka. And it was it was a beautiful stadium, but the facilities yeah. weren't particularly good. They didn't really yeah. think about all the other things. And obviously, they may not have had the world's best chef. So the New Zealanders were just, they just picked up as much fruit as they could, took it, and they would take it to the ground every day. And if there was a problem, they at least had fruit. Right. And there are certainly a lot of uh, journalists who've done similar things like that. Even as I said, it's not just in Asia. It's like, you know, South Africa is famous for having terrible food at cricket venues. So, again, you know, you'll see the journalists stuffing every banana and pineapple and orange and apple they can into their bags at breakfast just in case they get to the lunch and it's not very good. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that dietitian. So I was listening to a podcast by a celebrity nutritionist dietitian in India who claims to be the dietitian, personal dietitian for Shikhar Dhawan Virat Kohli. There's no way for me to verify that. But so he mentioned that these nutritionists often send menu cards to hotel chefs because they can't always travel with the players. It's also interesting that the uh, food that players eat also varies with time. For example, you won't eat the same meal in the morning and in the evening. And it also varies with conditions. So you won't eat the same thing in Dubai or Dharamshala. So that, that was fascinating to me. This Contrasting this with another essay I read by Sharda Ugra on how cricketers ate in the 1990s. Uh, so she quoted Jawadul Srinath. And I'll link the uh, piece in the show notes, brilliant piece. So she quotes Jawadul Srinath and Jawadul says that our, we didn't think about food in the 90s. Our drill was just fill your tummy and start playing. Dieting just meant eating less. And why would you do that? Why would you eat less? So my question to you, Jared, is when did this change come from just, you know, eating whatever is in front of you to now treating your body like a temple? So a lot of this, almost all the professional stuff in cricket comes from Aussie rules football. Really? Yeah, so essentially, Aussie rules football professionalized before cricket did in in Australia. And so it starts to professionalize in the late 70s, early 80s. And dietitians are probably pretty common by the early 90s in um, in Australian rules football because it's Melbourne, a Melbourne-based sport. It's not just played in Melbourne, but that's where the heart, the most money is made of it anyway. And that's where it was invented or uh, certainly uh, first played. That's the big heart of it. That happens to be where Cricket Australia is based. And so there was... A lot of the professionalism that you see in cricket comes from directly from Aussie Rules football because Aussie Rules football was so advanced. It was more advanced than Premier League football was, right? Despite the fact really? that, well, it was before Premier League football. But, you know, the, the old association football was still a little bit more amateur. And for whatever reason, Australian Rules football was doing that. The other thing that was happening in Australia at the same time was academy systems and, and government money and all these different things. And so if you have a look at Australia in the 1960s and 1970s at the Olympics, even in the 1980s, they're not very good. By the 90s... They're, you know, in the top five gold medal winners, in the top 10 gold medal winners, you know, fairly consistently for a long period of time. All of that professionalism from Aussie rules football and from the Olympics movement moves into cricket. And professional athletes who run and cycle, they have to think about what goes into their body, right? Yeah. And so, you know, and and the same with the Aussie rules players. I think an Aussie, I think a, a midfielder in Aussie rules runs 20, between 15 and 20 kilometers in a game. So again, you don't want to be eating the wrong thing before you're going out. You know, you, you know, their body fat was lower, all those sorts of things. And so because that was so professional, that had an impact on cricket through basically through swimming, athletics, cycling, and Aussie rules football all sort of have this big impact um, on cricket. Now, 
Shane Warne also comes out of that era. So it's not as if everyone uh, picks up on it. Yeah. But there are certainly a lot of players who do, and they do start to think about those sorts of things. So it's professionalism of Australian sport that comes out of, you know, these two random areas. And then from there, that eventually gets moved to everywhere, right? Where uh, teams all around the world, England cricket was famously, uh, England cricket is the first professional cricket. But as I said, because it was set up by aristocrats. And you got to remember when county cricket started, the Lords were playing it, right? You know, yeah. so- it wasn't set up for athletes, even when it should have been set up for athletes. It was set up for big fat guys. Um, like for instance, the reason that the reason that they didn't uh, that cricket fought over on bowling for the best part of sixty years was because that meant that the old guys wouldn't be able to play it anymore, right? So it was perfectly set up for these non-athletic people, which right. is why cricket doesn't have that athletic boom that some other sports do, and it's p- perhaps why. Some of the places like Australia and the West Indies who did have better athletes go on to dominate it because suddenly they're picking the best athletes, whereas England is still picking Mike Gatting, right? So there's a big difference between, you know, the athleticism of the, of the two teams at that, of, of some of the teams at that point. And so as it becomes more professional in the late 90s in Australia, that's when you start to hear about diets and play, you know, players stop smoking as much. The alcohol consumption starts to change. If you look at in the mid 90s, you know, Australia was still doing that thing where they were trying to break a made up record of how many beers they could drink um between australia and england and it is made up because the numbers change all the time they just it's complete nonsense so that's how much things change by the late 90s where players aren't drinking on planes as much and by the early 2000s you know alcohol consumption is discussed quite a bit you have some cricket teams who don't drink at certain times the food becomes a part of that dietitians um you know certainly i don't know how much time you spend in australia but australia is a very foodie culture um partly because it's multicultural yeah Partly because it's multicultural, partly yeah. just because Australia has very good food available yeah. to it. So, yeah. you know, all these different things sort of happen in Australia. And so dietitians become a big thing. And basically the rest of the world just copies Australia in cricket. You know, they were professional so much, so much better than everyone else that people just right. pick it up one after the other. And eventually India and England go beyond Australia as professionals. But, yeah. um, and, and the other big one that also happens at a very similar time, but just afterwards is that South Africa, I don't know how much you know about South African sports science, but the, in Cape Town, they're like one of the leaders in the world in sports science. And Bob Wilmer is a big part of that. And obviously he goes on to be the South African coach. So again, he, he's talking to, you know, uh, well, I think, he wrote a book with Tim Noakes, did he? Or was he friends with Tim, Professor Tim Noakes, who is, I think, the low-carb... You should know this. You're the food guy. What, what's Tim Noakes famous for? Is it one of the low-carb... Uh, Tim Noakes. Tim Noakes is famous for something in food, and you should know Tim this. Noakes. You should be telling me. I haven't heard of him, honestly. Yeah, so he's the guy who starts the Banting diet, which basically leads to all the low-carbing diets around the world. Oh, really? Okay? Tim Noakes is friends with Bob Woolmer. Huh. Right, That's because everyone in South Africa, everyone in in Cape Town, involved in sports science, they all know each other. So there's another one, a Professor Ross Tucker, who's another famous sports scientist. Yeah, they know each other, right? Right, uh, right. Doctor Cheryl, is it Cheryl? Cheryl, uh, Cheryl called Calder. God, I, sh- I forget her name. I've interviewed her. I, now, all they're all famous in different fields across, yeah. and uh, most of it is science based, right? Yeah, but. She's famous as an eye, uh, eye person and uh, Prof- Ross Tucker is famous as a sports science person and Tim Noakes was famous as a food person and Bob Woolmer was writing a sports science book about cricket and they're all in Cape Town and I think if they weren't all in the one university, they were all like a couple of universities apart. Right, right. You know, all working there and 
it's got it, it's an incredible thing. Anyway, that is the other big boom, right? Where suddenly they're thinking about how they train, and you know, we start to see range hitting with Lance Klusner. So South Africa are, are way above the curb in all that sort of stuff. A lot they do a lot of the similar stuff that Australia does, but without yeah. the professionalism, but with more scientific uh, energy because you know the Australian weren't quite at that level. And so you've then got you've got two really really important cricket coaches. You've got Bob Wilmer, who's written his own book about sports science, which might be behind me. Oh, it's up here. I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, Tim Noakes co-wrote that. Wait, let me get it. I've got to get that now. That's so a fast here, one. So here you have one of the people who yeah. literally changed the way people eat all around the world, writing a cricket book with Bob Woolmer. And my guess is that somewhere in here, there is, and I, I think I have it so big, as, as you can see, take yeah. me forever to flick through it. But I'm pretty sure there is a section in here on diet, Yeah. right? Like it, it really is cricket techniques, thinking cricket, cricket. Yeah, 526. If you're at home and you've got your Bob Woolmer book here, page 526 is probably where you want to have a look at, at something uh, when it comes to all that sort of stuff. So it tells you how much things were changing at that point. And I think there's some good stories here about some of the old cricketers and how bad they ate. I'm going to get but, this book. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It costs a fortune and it will you will need a very strong um, bookshelf. Um, <laughs> it is it is ridiculous. It's the best book ever written on cricket. And there are more romantic really? books and more beautiful books and everything else. That's this, really uh, a high opinion is, coming from you. Yeah, this, there's no book that, that changed cricket more than this one did. Uh, wow. CLR James wrote some incredible books, and obviously there's seen some brilliant ones written over the last couple of years. But this is an actual one that changed cricket on the field. Right. right? And, and so it has the biggest impact that cricket's ever had. It's, you know, it's a bit dry. I'm not going to pretend that you're going to be – it's not a page turner, but you go to the areas that you're interested in and suddenly right. you're just lost in this other world. Yeah. Those are the two things. And, and we have Bob Wilmer coaching. We have also John Buchanan coaching in Australia. So yeah. John Buchanan is another you know, sports science-y t- type of guy. You know, yeah. Gives his player the art of war by Sun Tzu and you know, <laughs> uh, all these sorts of random things to fire players up and, 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 you know, and was the first coach to really bring data. Uh, into international cricket. Really? And so at that stage, that sort of, I don't know, 1998 through to 2004, 2005, things change a lot. But it's still not that much. It's not as professional as it should be all through cricket. For instance, I can't remember what year this was, but I think it was around 2018. Chaminda Vass became the bowling coach of Sri Lanka. And the first thing he did was he had a look at all the diets of all the players. And he said, yeah, this is all wrong. You guys aren't eating enough protein. If you're going to bowl fast, you need protein. And so that's only a couple of years ago. And I'd be shocked if that isn't the case. There's also, to go back to our man Tim Noakes over here, when I first started in cricket, you know, bowlers especially would eat an absolute ton of rice and pasta uh, before big bowling days. Whereas now cricket is a very much a low carb protein based sport where players don't eat as much carbs as they used to because the, the current science tells us that carbs slow us down. Um, and yeah. that's not what, not what you want from your fast bowlers. And there was a, I don't know. It, it's still, I still don't think it's a myth, but there was this idea that Indian, that Indians don't produce fast bowlers because our fast bowlers are vegetarian and Pakistanis eat a lot of meat. So that's certainly a myth. I think I think that's a myth. I think we can I think we could safely say that Ishan Sharma was bowling over ninety miles an hour for a good period of time, um, and uh, him not uh, eating meat didn't affect him at all. Peter Siddle, we also have Peter Siddle, who mid career <clears throat> stopped eating meat, and his paces didn't uh, didn't change all that much before and after. Uh, so he became a vegan, I think, as well. No, no, it's a it's a myth. The protein is important, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a fast twitch thing, but 
it's not, I don't think it's as important as perhaps other people think it is. I think if you have a look at the reason why Pakistan has had fast bowls and India didn't, I think you'll find the proof is more to do with the pitches than it is to do with anything else. And we've certainly had, I mean, in this era of having a lot of Indian fast bowlers who are still vegetarian a lot of the times, I think it would be hard pressed to say that it is something that uh, that actually matters. And we're also seeing now cricket is becoming vegetarian on purpose, right? So, and, and we, this has happened in Asia and in non-Asian countries where players are, are picking later on in their career to go vegetarian. I, I'm trying to think. I remember Adam Zampa went vegan for a little while as well. Virat Kohli. Yeah, Virat Kohli's the famous one, but there's someone yeah. else. Um, so there's a couple of players now doing those sorts of things. And you, the, the big one first was the first movement I saw was the non-carb um, mm-hmm. people, and then the second one was the vegetarian. So we've certainly had those two things happen um, of, of recent times. And look at follows the fads of what's going on in the world sometimes as well. Yeah, there are lots of stories about Indian cricketers coming from vegetarian backgrounds, but but starting to eat chicken for uh, nutrition purposes. Uh, I can think of the example of Sehwag, who's mentioned openly that Sachin convinced him to start eating chicken uh, to get more protein, and he he was a vegetarian. Chicken in cricket is like it's like it, uh, even vegans eat chicken in cricket because I don't know what it is, but I so think it's a Western a- thing, uh, Jared. Indians don't consider. Chicken, uh, Indians consider chicken vegetarian, but I, I've seen, I've lived in Europe for a bit and chicken is, chicken and fish are not considered uh, meat. It's not, no, what I mean is yeah. everyone in cricket eats chicken, right? Like whether you're West or Eastern. So for instance, you know, one of the, the biggest restaurants in, in Bangladesh was, um, was Nando's. Right. And then, yeah. so, so when I cover, when I cover a world cup or a champion's trophy, yeah, yeah. I go to the local Nando's in the center of town because I know that's where all the players are going to hang out. Really? Both West, East, doesn't matter. All the players are there. I've never been to a Nando's during a cricket tournament where there isn't a commentator, a writer, a player, a coach, an umpire in that place, right? Yeah. And so Nando's is like the unofficial restaurant of cricket. It's, it's Nando's are so stupid that they haven't made this into a huge thing. I know some of the county players in England have like the black cards or whatever they call where you get the free meals and things like that. Or some of the international players have certainly had that before. But, you know, I've walked into a restaurant where the entire Sri Lankan team is there. I've walked into a restaurant where, you know, three or four Indian players are there. I walked into a restaurant where half of Pakistan's team was there and half of Bangladesh's team was there. I've walked into a restaurant where the entire South African team was there. Like, it's, it's really... I guess it's the least worst option for people in a new country. Like, it's the least variance option. Well, it's, a, it's basically McDonald's, but better, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't cricketers can't go into McDonald's or Burger King or you know Subway or anything like that. Yeah. But they can go into Nando's. You can get a proper good quality meal at Nando's, but it's still takeaway, right? You know, you go in, you eat, you leave. Um, it's you, you know, all, all the all the the good things about takeaway food is there, but you're also eating more healthy. So, it, and, and then then you've got all the. It's got better vegetarian options than I think some of the other fast food pro- places probably do. So the vegetarian players don't mind going there. It's not a it's not a restaurant, so there's not as much alcohol around for the players who don't like alcohol. There, there is alcohol, but it's not like a Nando's is not really drinking places. Although I did hear once that the one in Bangladesh is quite um, can get quite lively, but it's not like a drinking place again because you know it's more of a fast food place. You don't really go to Nando's to get drunk, do you? Do you know what I mean? You might have a beer or, or, or an alcohol yeah. with dinner yeah. if you're in a Western place, but again, it's not that kind of place. You know, uh, oh, it's got all these little advantages, but yeah, it's become very much the the uh, the international cricket food source for for players when they're on the road. So it's a it's a really really interesting um, uh, side note. And as I said. 
Nando's, I don't think I've ever made enough of it. In, in county cricket, I don't think there's a player during a year who does not stop at Nando's, right? Like it's just, it's so much part of the culture now that, that sort of everyone does that. And, you know, if, if I was ever to set up an office, you know, and just, just to hang out with players, I would probably just like say to Nando's, can I have this table for seven <laughs> hours a day and, and do it that way? So it's, yeah. it's a very, very interesting uh, part of that. But that's what I mean by even though it's a chicken restaurant, everyone sort of goes there. But, but you're okay. right. There are a lot of players who don't eat meat who do eat chicken. But no, right. South Africa is the place that South Africa think fish and chicken um, is a vegetable. <laughs> Yeah, and, and South Africa used to be the hardest place for vegetarians because of that. Uh, that vegetarian players, vegetarian journalists, vegetarian fans had huge problems in South Africa. It's not as much the case now. South Africa is a very different over the last five years when it comes to food. Yeah, um, but uh, traditionally, going back, you know, vegetarian was here, here's your salad. That's a piece of chicken. Yeah, yeah. salad. <laughs> Indians famously used to, uh, I think, in the eighties, nineties, used to in players used to go to the diaspora in the country where they were touring and eat at their homes. I think this is also documented in uh, this movie about the Indian 83 World Cup win. So that that is a really interesting, if you want to go into the Asian cricket culture, it's really interesting to this day that if you are, let's say you're in Taunton for the World Cup. Yeah. I don't know. I'm trying to kind of remember who I covered in Taunton, but Afghanistan or Bangladesh, right? Yeah, yeah. You just go to the Asian restaurants at night and all the players will be there and they will be stocking up and they quite often will take bags to go and, and you know, tiffins uh, for the next day and everything else. So it doesn't happen as much with people's houses anymore. Partly match yeah. fixing, I think, changed that. Yeah. But if you're if you're in a World Cup and you're in a smallish city, um, you know, say Nottingham, say Adelaide, uh, Taunton, those sorts of, you know, where it's not like three or four million people, if you just, if you walk in the center of town from Asian restaurant to Asian restaurant, you will eventually find um, a, a player eating in one of those restaurants. It's, you know, it's a huge honor, obviously, for the, sh- uh, for, for the people who run it. I, I don't, you don't see it as much in the other way around. You don't see the Western players doing it as much. Although there used to be a, in Colombo, and I'm not sure if it's still there, but there was a cricket cafe in Colombo, which was run by Australians. And there you could get a, you know, a, a cold beer and a pie and, um, you know, and, and a, you know, a steak and all the sorts of things that in the rest of Sri Lanka are not as easy. Well, beer is easy to get, but not Australian beer or Western beer is not as easy to get in the rest of Sri Lanka. Um, right. And I remember c- covering, must have been a World Cup and I was there and I went to watch, because it was an Australian cafe, I went to watch the Aussie Rules um, there. Yeah. And like the Australian coaching staff was there. A couple of players were there. And so you, it doesn't happen as often, but there are a couple of places around. It used to be that the Australian players would sometimes go to the walkabout hotels in England, uh, which are, again, Australian-themed restaurants, but they're usually horrendous places. And these days, the Australian players um, skip them. I think, is that where David Warner tried to punch Joe Root? I think they, they skip them a bit. But in the old days, you would get stuff like that. But it's really prevalent with uh, with the Asian team still of you know going to a local restaurant, getting the food, taking the photo getting the photo up on the wall getting looked after um and then your family gets looked after right like it's it's you know it's a it's a huge thing um so that still happens but not as much with the houses but there are there are certainly people around the world that it's a big problem when it comes to match fixing and everything else at times um yeah where you you certainly have this thing of there are maybe too many people involved with international cricketers um and there are certainly it certainly still happens to this day but it's not as bad as it was yeah, Jared, I have to ask you about alcohol. So in the last few years, nutrition science, to the surprise of no one, has spoken about how alcohol affects physical performance. I have uh, witnessed it myself. I stopped 
drinking and I'm much better at the gym. Now, we've established that players now optimize their diets and lifestyles to have elite bodies to induce the stresses of cricket and also maximize their performance. Despite this, I've noticed there's a very prominent drinking culture in teams like Australia and England. Soon as a match is won, beers are out in, on the ground. And you've spoken about partying with those student players also in the past. Do you see this culture changing given the opportunity costs uh, of players having uh, very fit bodies? Or do you think players can, you know, balance performance with drinking? Uh, I'll tell you an interesting story. This isn't quite about alcohol, but it follows the yeah. same thing. Whereas a friend of mine who's a former cricketer, he retired from cricket and he'd never done any drugs because he obviously was terrified of, you know, um, doing that. And within the space of about a week, he did cocaine, marijuana, maybe ecstasy, right? Yeah. He's, you know, he's a 35-year-old man with kids, right? But he'd yeah. never done any drugs. Yeah. And he didn't really know how to take them and he didn't handle it very well. We are now starting to see players do similar sorts of things with alcohol as well, where they don't take it through in their career. That's certainly happened more in the West. Um, Whereas it's almost the opposite is happening in Asia because drinking culture is such a major part of cricket that Asian players, I mean, you know, quite famous that the most pious Asian players still drink alcohol. You know, there are some that don't, of course, but, you uh, you know, the Pakistani team, Alcohol, cocaine, marijuana was like a fairly part yeah. of you know, 80s and 90s was part yeah. of their thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a bit different now, obviously, with testing and everything else. There are a lot more players now from places like Australia and South Africa and England which are, and, and New Zealand, which are the main drinking cultures in cricket, who don't drink as much. I know a lot of West Indian players as well who are not drinking. Mm-hmm. It's a lot less. But what you get now is it's basically – it's better for their health, but then they have – then they have this other thing where they sort of become like binge drinkers. So they don't have one drink at dinner, right? Yeah. And they don't have a couple of drinks after the day to relax. But then at the end of the test match, they drink like 25 drinks. And I've been out with them, as you said, you know, I've been out with a few of the teams when they've been celebrating. They're terrible. Like they drink, they drink like they're in the hangover, right? Like it's, it's nuts. And I'm thinking, so you haven't drunk for seven days, but now you're drinking seven days with alcohol in one moment. How is that any good for you? And so I think there needs to be a balancing act uh, with that sort of stuff. I would say if you look at the numbers and, you know, you're much more into food and everything else, but I don't know if this is the case in Asia because I kind of feel it's the opposite in Asia. But in the rest of the world, most people under 30 drink less than they used to. So younger people now, so my, my dad, he'll be listening to this, but my dad, the only time he doesn't drink alcohol on a day is when he's got like an ear infection or he's got to go have a surgery, right? He has a drink every single day, usually two, maybe three. Even my mum would drink 330, 340 days of the year, right? I can go a month without drinking, two months without drinking. And a lot of even younger people than me don't drink that much, right? And so I think that that is coming through the cricket. Have a look at the Australian cricket team, even the South African cricket team. This is not the cricket. This is not Brian McMillan and David Boone. Very different kinds of people are playing cricket now than were 20 and 30 years ago. Alcohol is no longer the center of their universe. What they do want to do though and this is sort of where what you're talking about comes back is they certainly want to celebrate victories. It's a big thing in cricket of celebrating victories. It's one thing that we can do in cricket cricket that we can't do in other sports. It's very hard if you're a basketballer or a baseballer or a you know, Premier League footballer to celebrate your victory because in three or four days, you're probably playing again. Or the next day, well, or baseball, double header, you might be playing two in the same day. Yeah. Test matches, there's usually a minimum of three days break. 
is sometimes there's a seven days break. Sometimes you may not be playing for another two months. They want to celebrate their victories. And they certainly, that has been part of the sort of the drinking culture, I think, uh, uh, that you're talking about. But I would say in general, players drink 70 to 80, maybe even 90% less than they did a previous Western players or non-Asian players. Asian players probably drink more than they ever have before. Yeah. But that might be up from a very small amount from, from earlier. Um, uh, whereas Western players were, you know, very high levels to not as much. And I think there's certainly a big, um, there's certainly a big change, but, but I don't think that's just sport. Although sport, obviously, as you said, plays a big part. I think it's culturally. I just don't think people drink in the same rates that they used to. Alcohol is not the same. You know, marijuana has become, you know, have a look at the NBA players. Most of them um, are using marijuana more than they're drinking. Like things have changed in the way that people consume uh, their toxic stuff. Yeah. There's some uh, wild stories in the news that you'd know more, uh, which are not in the news about players having uh, drinking till the early hours of the morning and then smashing it the next day. I think one example is of Hershey Gibbs in uh, the first time a team scored 400 in an ODI. It's the South Africa versus Australia ODI. Another example is of, I think, KL Rahul when he smashed 100 in the US against West Indies after having a, a very late night with alcohol. Yeah, is, is, no, that very, mean, is that very common? Uh, it was in the old days. It's not okay. as much anymore. You got to remember, it's a bit like Michael Jordan and the scars, right? Like you know, you watch the Last Dance and Michael Jordan's having a cigar every five minutes. Modern players are looking at that, going, "What?" But they don't realize that half the players were smoking back days, and they were all yeah. drinking, and they were all going to casinos and everything. And so, yeah. you know, there was a couple of players who took fitness very seriously, but not yeah. everyone did. Yeah, there's a great one of my favorite stories is I think Mike Gadding was caught cheating on his wife, and the BBC did an interview with Garfield Sobers going, "Isn't this disgusting?" The England captain uh, cheating on his wife, and Garfield Sobers was like, "What are you talking about? I was out to seven a.m. every night drinking rums, sleeping with hookers, right?" <laughs> he said that on the radio. <laughs> It's a, one of the best moments of, of, of broadcasting cricket ever. That was a big thing. Uh, Ian Both, but 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 as I say, Ian Botham's a perfect example of someone whose his lifestyle ruined his cricket. Ian Botham could have gone down as one of the top five best players of all time, and he doesn't because he wasn't fit. He was drinking. He wasn't sleeping. You know all the things he shouldn't have been doing. He had a great life. He probably had a more enjoyable life. That but. Have a look at his numbers. After his early athleticism starts to fade, pretty ordinary cricketer. And he shouldn't have been. He should have been one of the greatest of all time. And I think those sorts of stories do get passed around more and more um, as things are going on. But yeah, certainly that is the case. Even even of recent times, you know, I, I w- it probably, I couldn't have think of too many cases of recent times where a player would be up until dawn and play. There's a great story, and I won't say the player because... He's retired now, but I'm not sure how public this story is. But there is a great story of a player in counter cricket who was a big international player who turned up to the ground at 9 a.m. having not been to bed, drinking all night, went out to bat, went out, uh, faced a couple of balls, played and missed at one by about this much and walked. <laughs> Just pretended he went out because he didn't want to bat. <laughs> so there's some great stories like that. There's, you know, vomiting. Um, Freddie Flintoff and Steve Harmison t- tell some great stories about, you know, and, um, you know, that, that era is not that long ago. That's only 10 years ago. It's really yeah. not something we see much anymore. Um, yeah. But certainly, yeah, back in the day, drinking, drinking all night into the next day wasn't particularly seen as that bad. It was, there were certainly players who wouldn't do it. But the idea that you might get drunk uh, during a test match and, and, stay out to three or four in the morning wasn't it wasn't enough to ruin your career or anything whereas if you did that regularly now you'd have to be ab de villiers or andre russell to continue to get picked in fact a lot of the west indies boys they would be 
closer to some of the players who still party the longest. Also, West Indians keep different hours than other players. But cricket's so weird anyway now, whereas I think staying out to three, four, five, six in the morning is very different when a lot of players play day-nighters. Yeah. If you, if you finish, I remember um, talking to the early IPL players and they were sort of saying, I was saying, you guys, what are you doing? You keep getting caught up in these problems. Like, yeah. go to bed. And they were like, okay, so we finished the game at 11.30. We get a bus back at 12.30. We, we get something to eat around 12.31. We've played a game. The adrenaline is going through us. If we stay up for two hours, we're already in the worst time of the night. And I think there's certainly a big, that, that's certainly something that you see a lot where a lot of players even when they're not drinkers, are staying up too late after those day-nighters. And it does, you know, what's the old rule? Nothing good happens between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m. You know, yeah, so yeah. there are things that happen even when those players don't drink um, in those hours. But certainly the, the, the stories of players staying up all night and drinking and playing, they, they finished a good few years ago. And now if they're told, they're told differently. They're now told of, can you believe this guy did this? Rather than before it'd be like, hey, listen to this legend. You know, he was up all night, um, didn't sleep at all, and then made 200 the next day. It was really common. Uh, I would say counter cricket's one of the last places where that's probably seen. Was it um, Brendan Taylor um, woke up in someone else's car? You know that story, the Zimbabwe captain? Yeah. Uh, you know, played a game, got so drunk, went home, thought he was in his car, accidentally broke into someone else's car, and that person in the morning came in to find an international cricket captain asleep in their car. <laughs> wow. Jared, you've covered a lot of matches. Uh, have you ever been drunk on the job? As a journalist, yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah journalists generally just, wow, well, maybe less so now again with the generational change. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've probably written articles when I've been drinking before. You know, quite happen what happens at, at the end of a big test series or right. a World Cup or something. Alcohol will be provided for everyone kind of at the ground, yeah. especially if it's like there's nothing they can do with this alcohol that's not going to stay fresh until next year and they don't have any events coming or whatever else. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, no, I've certainly uh, I've certainly done that before. When I first started, I think the 1011 Ashes, we had a fridge in the press box at Adelaide with beer in it all the way through the test. And I, I wouldn't say I was drunk, but I was certainly drinking. Um, and in those days, I think they used to have, I think it used to be pretty easy to get alcohol in the Lord's press box in those days. Um, again, uh, yeah, I, special events. Sometimes it gets, you know, a sponsor yeah. might bring some alcohol in. Um, yeah. You might have a wine tasting in some places. You got to remember a lot of these, a lot of these smaller venues, they're trying to impress you, right? So yeah. you get somewhere like Adelaide and Hobart, some of the New Zealand grounds can do this as well. They'll have like a wine tasting or a whiskey tasting um, halfway through the game because it's some local company that they want you to tweet about or you know yeah. put up an insta about or whatever yeah. um so sometimes you get that sort of stuff um it yeah i wouldn't say drinking and working is as much uh, a, a part of the job as when i started when i started most cricket journals were really really heavy drinkers that's not really i've got a few friends that don't drink at all and you know um probably i think we might have one big night during a test and usually it just depends, but it's certainly not the drinking culture that I came into. Um, so even that, but I just think society has changed when it comes to alcohol. I don't think yep. that's just a, certainly in the West, I don't think it's as big a deal as it was in the old days. I agree. Uh, let's talk about food inside stadiums. So you had spoken about GABA and the MCG. In India, it's everybody knows the food inside stadiums is horrible, at least for uh, regular uh, ticket holders, not for, not in the VIP box. The VIP box is still still has alcohol and special catering. 
but for regular fans of food is horrible you get fa- for example i'm from delhi and in the arun jetli stadium you get fast food pizzas at like four times the price of what you'd get them outside and they're cold you get some snacks like samosas but again six times the price but they taste horrible but the arun jetli stadium is actually one of my favorite going to a match at the arun jetli stadium is one of my favorite food experiences why because outside the stadium is uh, old delhi and old delhi has some of the best food in india uh, it has some of the best biryani kebabs butter chicken it is well butter chicken was invented or chicken tikka masala it's, it's called in the uk in fact i did an episode with himanish kanju who's your uh, who, who you've also invited on the red ink earlier uh, and he is a delhi food romantic and we were just talking about going to the kotla and uh going going to different places in the morning before a match or and after the match and uh, it, it's one of my favorite food experiences like if if not for if the kotla or the arunjeetli stadium was in another place in delhi i probably wouldn't go as much uh for the matches as well uh because the food inside is horrible so coming to my question you you spoke highly of the mcg would you say it has the best food in the world for the stadium No no so the MCG that's when you go in the committee room but you only get invited in that once so oh. MCG food's pretty ordinary MCG's one of the few grounds in the world that does a very good tea spread so okay. you know it's a lo- it's for a long players? day for uh, everyone for yeah, everyone yeah, well i mean in, so the MCG is um the food options i grew up at the MCG the food options were pretty bad over the years yeah. the food's got a lot better there it's always overpriced there's no ground in the world that doesn't gouge you on the price yeah doesn't matter what it is uh but the food options in the mcg for fans are pretty good the press food's okay but it's not it's not one of the best ones no the best places best places i've eaten the best meal i've ever had in a cricket ground in the press was at eden gardens for an ipl game and so what happens when uh usually when i'm there covering in in asia covering a game i'm there with yeah. the western team so I'm, you know australia or england more, more right. often than not and so they dumb down the food a little bit But when I went to the IPL game, I was the only white journalist in in the ground. And so it was normal stuff and it was a fish curry made in a huge pot. You'll know the names of all these things better than me, but yeah, it looked yeah. it looked like a you know, like a witch was about to um, <laughs> you know, put a spell on something. Yeah. And it's still the best fish curry I've ever had. Absolutely incredible. But every ever time I've been back to Eden Gardens, they've had western food uh, and it's been absolutely horrendous. Or they have Asian food but it's not at that level so the, you know yeah. they've still dulled it down a little bit so it's not yeah. um yeah. But the, that was one of the best meals I've ever had in a ground. Yeah. Um yeah. Edgebaston, the food at Edgebaston is absolutely incredible and it's so varied uh from day to day. There's a, I think they have a curry option every day but they also have, you know, things like roasts uh you know b- uh, beef sandwiches they have uh, uh quite often they have a cooked breakfast in the morning uh, you know when i did the um a uh, finals day so finals days at three t20 games back to back to back and like we had breakfast we had lunch and then yeah. uh at the evening they had like a make your own sandwich place with like wow with the but just like the ingredients were incredible i think yeah. most people now would say that edgebaston is the best ground in the world for food um outside i don't know what it does for the punters because there's no yeah. reason for me ever to leave the press box to check what the punters are eating yeah um uh, the oval and and lords have very good food trucks now they didn't right. when i first started so at the oval for a long period i would eat at the food trucks rather than eat the oval press food because it was pretty poor in south africa i especially in cape town 
and I'm going to get all the names wrong, but the South African sausages vans. Yeah. There's a woman who used to drive a van in and used to have a sausage van there. That was better than any other food you could get in South Africa um, at Cape Town. So I wouldn't even have the food. The, the, the food that they had in South, the South African grounds was terrible. Uh, you get a lot of uh, yeah, uh, curry chickens and stuff in the West Indies. Yeah. It's fine. I, I wouldn't have said I had that many great meals compared to West Indian culture food, which is a lot better. I'd say that it was a little bit bland. I've had a couple of very good meals in New Zealand. New Zealand's another place that quite often likes to impress everyone. So um, I've had some you know, full English breakfasts and some great lamb meals um, at yeah. times uh, there. What you're seeing now is, and it hasn't happened as much in the Asian grounds, although I haven't traveled since COVID, so I'm hoping it will, but a lot of, a lot of the places now are just getting smarter and they're just letting food vans and food trucks come in, right? And not the yeah. old not the old crappy ones that you get in the old days, but proper food vans um, and letting them just come in and, you know, you can get incredible meals sometimes um, at, some, at some of the grounds around the world. Um, yeah. Lord's, Lord's is overrated. Lord's is the famously best one. I've had some good meals at Lord's, but I've yeah. never thought to myself, I've never thought to myself, if this was a restaurant, I would come here. Whereas at Edge Baston, I'm like, if this was a restaurant, I would come here. Um, there's some interesting things have happened in Australian grounds at times where sometimes they're trying to impress you. So they had like an oyster, oyster shucking at Adelaide once where literally, you know, they had a guy there freshly getting oysters. I think they had the same thing at, um, Hobart. There's another time in Adelaide where we got lobster and steak, uh, which was not normal, um, to be able to get that level of food. Sydney at Tea Time used to put out a seafood platter, which would yeah. have, which is just one of the best seafood wow. platters you'll ever see in the world. So that that was absolutely incredible. I had, I went to Pune in, was it Pune? Yeah, Pune in 2016. When Australia won the match. That, yeah, that test. Yeah, yeah um, that was Pune. The food there was absolutely incredible. That actually, that food was so good at that ground that it kind of changed. Well, it changed the way I tour Asia, but it probably changed the way I eat. Really? Um, I got what so hooked on there? the. On the it was the dal. Um, I, everything was great, but I yeah. don't think I'd ever eaten dal that much before. Yeah. Um, you got to remember, I I I'm, I have a, I had a very similar diet to Shane Warne growing up, right? And <laughs> yeah. even though all my friends were Sri Lankan when I grew up, and, you know where yeah. I lived and my you know, my babysitters were Sri Lankan, I still wouldn't yeah. eat any Asian food. Yeah. Then I start traveling in cricket. You can always get Western meals. They're usually terrible, but you can always get Western meals in Asia. So I just kept doing that. And then so that, was that 2016 or 2017? I think 2017. So 2016, I'm, I had started to eat Asian food. Okay. I know that for a fact because I'd gone to a bunch of places where that was the only option. <clears throat> so I'd started to get a little bit better. Mm. Um, I remember working for Crick Info and being in Bangalore and literally yeah. everyone having this great Indian food and then they had ordered me um, Pizza Hut uh, pizza yeah. to come up uh, yeah. because they were afraid I wasn't going to be able to eat anything. That's how bad I was. Yeah. And I went from that to eating everywhere, you know, eating street food in Pune. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, in fact, a lot of my uh, – Pune was a big difference for me. I think before then I would eat a little bit of rice, I would eat a little bit of chicken, and I would put some of the sauces on, you know. Um, and yeah. then from that moment it was just – I just eat Asian food. What You put it in front of me and I'll try it and I'll like it or I won't like it and I'll move on yeah. to the next bit. Um yeah. And so that was a big, big change. And so the Pune food was absolutely brilliant. And I remember it would be like me, Gav Joshi, Bharat, um, Monga. And even they were like, this is, this is not the level of food. And I think it was something to do with the fact that it was the, um, it was the same food that the star guys were getting. So it had to be top quality food. It was something like that, you know, the, and it was an accident, you know, it never happened again. Um, <laughs> 
And so, and then, you know, and I've been to Sri Lanka a few times. Again, the, you know, the Sri Lankan food's a bit like that, where, you know, if, if you want to eat terrible food, you eat the Western food. But if you want to eat good food, you have to, you know, uh, eat the local stuff. And um, in fact, that Pune test, I remember this, we, we ate and it really changed so much that afterwards we, there was a, a foodie friend of ours who worked at Crickinfo. I can't remember if it was Rachna. It was someone, someone from the office anyway who suggested we go to like, I don't know what it's called, but it's like a, it's like a gymkhana or like a gentleman's club in Pune. And okay. it's right opposite. It's right opposite where the, the caves are in the old Pune. Um, yeah. like it's in that area and we went there and no one spoke English in this place and we only had one person who was Indian but that's Arya Yutsu who yeah. um, speaks French better than he speaks Hindi so he was of yeah. absolutely no use to us and so we didn't even know what we were ordering and that was vegetarian and I, I would swear that's the first time in my life I'd had a vegetarian meal and afterwards was like this is awesome I absolutely love this and so it really did change the way that I thought about food um, that that whole trip in Pune um, sadly we had Mark Butcher with us and somewhere along the lines we took him to a place where he spent three days uh, almost dying in his hotel room but i felt fine um so i'm not so sure it's, butcher- it's mark butcher not the food yeah i'm not sure that uh, butch will ever come out to me and to a restaurant although i did get him to a great burger place in candy which was so cool that afterwards i met kumar sankakara and i said have you been to the burger place in candy and he was looking at me like i'd made this place up and we had to show him photos of the burgers in candy and he's like i'm from candy and i don't know about this place and we were telling him yeah. it's opposite the hsbc bank it's up on the it's awesome <laughs> you have to go anyway yeah so yeah um uh, so i think that i think sh- traveling to sri lanka and india I, I i think over a period of time over three or four years i just went to sri lanka and india quite a lot and so yeah. i i'd worked out how to eat without without really embracing the food, but it was at Pune 2016, 2017 period uh, where I certainly changed um, how I ate. And, you know, I now eat dal. Well, my mother-in-law is Sri Lankan. She makes me dal about three times a week. Um, she makes a big batch of it. And we put it in the fridge and, you know, and, and I uh, eat it all the time. So that certainly changed it from that perspective. You yeah. know, my, my, my kids all eat uh, curry and, and everything. And, um, you know, we, we have a, we have a local Himalayan restaurant and we have a local Indian restaurant and we sort of, go between the two depending yeah. on what we want and you know all that sort of stuff so things that that massively changed things but i, I tell you a very funny story about food and cricket yeah was when i was interviewing shrisanth right so i had basically uh shrisanth for those uh, who don't know your uh, the, the foodie people he was an indian cricketer who got done for match fixing he was sort of he was becoming a bollywood is it mollywood is that the name of the other one no it's not mollywood is it the malayan I, film yeah it the lots of Whatever Hollywood. the Malayam cinema yeah. is called. I should yeah, remember yeah, the yeah. name. But. And I'll link that piece in the show notes. It's, it's, I think, a very entertaining piece, even for non-cricket enthusiasts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so he's a bit of a nutcase. And I somehow conned him into letting me stay with him and hang out with him for a couple of days. And, yeah. Uh, and so, and he'd made out, he's a bit of, he tried to big dick me a little bit, you know, the, you know, people want to talk to me all the time, Jared, but I'm going to let you. And then I realized that wasn't the case at all. He's absolutely desperate to have me there. And yeah. his wife had um, made a full dinner. And it was like literally Shrisanth, her and me. The yeah. biggest dining table of all time. There's three of us there. And the food was from one end of the table to the other, right? Yeah. And she made three chicken meals. And she made, so far left was the chicken meal that she, that her and Shrisanth were going to be eating. In yeah. the middle was like one, if I was a little bit adventurous. And then at yeah. the end was the Western chicken, right? That probably had the least amount of spices she could put on a chicken meal. <laughs> and, and she told me this. And she was like really honest. And she was like, you know, and if you don't like spices, this one, I mean, this is the one we're going to eat. And I was just like, that's so really thoughtful of her, Jared. It was incredible. She was such a lovely yeah. woman. Yeah. Um, 
just a very, very like a player's wife. And I don't mean that in a bad way either, but yeah. you know, players' wives are very, all very similar, um, you know, very well put together and very professional. And, you, you know, they all look like they could host a TV show at a moment's notice. She just looked yeah. like a woman, like a normal yeah. woman, very smart, you know, very, but, you know, very different. And she's put this incredible meal together for me. So I ate all three chickens because I, I was like, well, <laughs> I, I want to know which one's best. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to end up not doing that. But yeah, so uh, that, I think, I think it was that Pune test really did change the way. And the, the interesting thing about that Pune test was, I was so you know in Pune, it's got the, I forget the name of the road, but there's a road that goes to Mumbai, and basically 24 hours of the day, it's five lanes in either direction, yeah, and the traffic it's never the Mumbai stops. Pune Expressway. That's it. Yep. Yeah. I was staying on one side of that, ah. and on the other side of the road was a pizza hut and a, a bar restaurant. Right. Yeah. And so for the first four days, I was trying to cross the nine lane, and it's the, still the worst road I've ever tried to cross. And I've crossed Dubai roads. It's the worst road I've ever tried to cross, but. That's where the Pizza Hut was, right? So I was yeah. like desperate. And by the end of that, I was just like, I mean, I still like to have a pizza occasionally when I'm, you know, or, or a burger when I'm in, in that, that part of the world. But the local yeah. food is so ridiculous that it, it, so Pune did change me forever. Um, so thank you to the Pune caterer of 2017. Um, yeah. In fact, the only thing I would say that really ruined it was the fact that the test match only went for about um, uh, two and a half days because it was such a ragging turner. Um, and then by the end of that tour, we were in Ranchi. And I remember it was me and KK, Melinda Farrell, Aria was there. And we were staying in the middle of nowhere in this terrible hotel. And I do mean a terrible hotel. Like at one stage, we, I went downstairs and there was a dog turd on the stairs, right? And so I told the staff that, there, that a dog had come into the hotel and shit on it. And they were like, oh, of course. And then we, uh, that night we came back up. And all they'd done is they put a piece of tissue on and just done that. And so the smell ah. of the <laughs> terrible hotel I, I, so I'm going to go to the next part of the story, which was they had a chicken tikka meal. It was like a dry chicken tikka. Um, yeah. So it didn't have a sauce on it or anything like that. Um, and the the chicken tikka was um, so good that we never left that room. So we would order the food to come into our room every night. And all four of us uh, were absolutely obsessed. By, and I've still never had a chicken tikka anywhere near as this, this as good as I did in Ranchi um, in, in this hotel room, which was not nice. It was it was not it's not it was not it's not a good place to be. But we all we would eat, so we would just get all this food onto the beds. And like I think you know there were two uh, two beds in each room, and we, like someone yeah. someone had to make their bed into the um into the food bed. Um, so by that point, I was just all in on that. So it really did change. I changed the way I looked at food, and and it's not just that. It's like you know, the Asian food is one thing, but also, you know, South African food is quite different to what I grew up with. West Indian food is quite different to what I, I grew up with. You know, so after Pune, you know, the ability to just go to a rum shop, uh, well, not a, well, a rum and chicken shop and get a meal um, on the side of the road. The same with South Africa of just be able to go, okay, you know, I've had Nando's. What's the real stuff like? Yeah. You know, what can you do here? All that sort of stuff. It, you know, it really did open up, but it took me a long time just because, I, I didn't have a basic I, I didn't have like a white person's diet. As I said, I had like a Shane Warne diet, right? Where yeah. literally I wouldn't eat anything at all. So to go from that to where I am now is very, very different. E- either way, you know, my wife um is probably very happy with the Pune um caterer for how much it's changed yeah. how I eat. Yeah. You know who's not happy with the Pune caterer? Matt Renshaw, who had to famously run out of the ground or out of the pitch, I think. Was that Pune? Because he had to poo. I think it was Pune. 
I think you might be right. Yeah. Yeah. It might have been. Yeah. Look, the, the other thing is, we don't talk about this a lot. There's yeah. heaps of stories about white players going to Asia and having that happen to them. Yeah. The same thing happens sense. when Asian players come to West. Yeah. Right. It's not usually as life threatening. You don't get yeah. the. So the first time I went to Sri Lanka, I had a I had a re re wedding ceremony with my wife's family in Sri Lanka, um, and I spent that. I lost yeah. twenty five kilos after wow. that. Wow, really, really sick. As sick as I've ever been. Uh, completely ruined my holiday. Couldn't do anything. I've never been sick again in Asia since. That doesn't happen to the Western, uh, to the Asian players who come to the West. But you do get. I remember the Bangladesh team all got sick at one stage. You know, they just. It's because you're eating bacteria that you're not used to, and and yeah. you know, in different situations and all that sort yeah. of stuff. So your gut bacteria is not used to the exactly. local bacteria. Yeah. Yeah, and so. You know, I think traditionally it was seen as more of a, oh, the Asian food, and don't get me wrong. I think if you look at some of the f- meals that the eight, 80s cricketers were eating, yeah. um, it wasn't it wasn't as clean as it should have been and it wasn't as good as it yeah. should have been and everything else and things have changed. Yeah. But a lot of it is just you still see Asian teams come over to England and to Australia and sometimes get sick um, in the exact same way. And it's not talked about as much because it's usually not someone almost dying, you know, the Dougie Bollinger situation where, you know, yeah. he said he might never eat in Asia again and all these sorts of things. But yeah. they definitely still do get sick. So it, it's, it's certainly something that needs to um, – that that doesn't happen as much anymore. Partly because, as we said before, it's more professional now, and you do get you know better um, situations, and and people do go out of their way to do the right things. Um, you know, it, when I first came to Asia, like people would say things like, you know, you you shouldn't have ice in your drinks, and you shouldn't have um, salad because they'll they'll clean it with the water from the taps and all this sort my, of stuff. My dad still says that you shouldn't have ice in the drinks at like if it's not a premium restaurant and, and you're you order a drink. That is very fair. In fact, that might yeah. have been what got Mark Butcher sick as well. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't drink ice in my, um, in my, in my old monk or my, uh, um, uh, what's the, uh, what's the rum that they have in in Sri Lanka? Um, oh God, I can't believe I've forgotten the name of it. But the, uh, the, the, um, the Arak. Arak, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't have ice in those things, so I never. It yeah. doesn't bother me. I prefer to have it a little, um, you know, feel the warmth of it a little bit more. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, no, there's still a lot of people who do that. As you said, and especially, I, I always think that now I feel a lot more comfortable with the local food than I do with the Western food because sometimes you will get Western food where it's a chef who doesn't cook it very much and they don't yeah. quite understand what they're doing. And you know, I'd much rather just have um, something local and you know, stop in somewhere else. So um, I think things have changed quite a bit uh, for me personally, but also you know, just in cricket in general, just the the options in and as you said, sometimes outside the ground, people are getting smarter and pulling their own food vans up and you know, places like Old Delhi. Uh, you're certainly seeing those sorts of things um, come in, uh, you know, to to different kinds of places around cricket. Like, you know, if you're ever in Adelaide, everyone sort of st- stays around Hindley Street, but there's a great food street. I think it's called O'Connor or O'Connell Street, just at the mm-hmm. other end of Adelaide Oval. Yeah, it's, it's got two famous fish and chip shops who are at war with each other, which is one of my favourite things ever. And they're both at war with <laughs> each other over over a meal that is called the AB, which is short for the abortion, which is a meal, which is it's meat, chips, cheese, all in like a bit. It's like a lasagna with chips on it or something. Wow. It's absolutely disgusting. And that's why it's called the abortion. It is horrendous. And there's two fish and chip shots that are at war, but they're both really good, high quality fish and chip shots. But there's a bunch of lovely restaurants and bars and uh, that do food in that area. You know, so there are some, you know, some really cool like little districts uh, when it comes to, you know, um, 
even somewhere like Nottingham has like these like weird lot of like laneway places that you can find. Uh, yeah. You know, some of the smaller grounds uh, around the world, you can sort of stumble out of the well. Nottingham's a bit of a walk. It's about a half, 30, 40-minute walk. But if you're willing yeah. to make that walk, you know, there's a few different places out there where you can do stuff yeah. like that um, yeah. and and make you, and make your way through and, and find some other food. But, but yeah, it, but the, I think the food for the players and in the ground is certainly changing. Superb. Uh, on that note, I think we'll call today, Jared. This was tons of fun. I learned so much. Often I do these podcasts to uh, learn interesting things myself. And we just record it so that others can also uh, learn along, along the way. I think so, I think I've given you every cricket food story I can think of, but I yeah. bet you if one of my friends listens, they'll be like, "What about that time when this happened?" Um, but yeah, it's I, I, I always I find it very very interesting. It's the sort of thing I don't know if you know this, but my Instagram. If you go back to my Instagram from the, when I started Instagram, I didn't know what to do with Instagram, right? Yeah. So Did you post I, food pictures just from cricket grounds. Oh, so the first 300 photos on my Instagram are just pictures and I have no interest in food, right? I'm not a foodie yeah. person. Yeah. Um, you know, I've become more so of recent times, as I said, but even then I'm not a massive food person. Yeah. I, the one thing I like to do, I've got quite famous with the talk sport crew is I love to find a cool restaurant in every place we go. Yeah. You know, find the best burger place or the best, you know, pizza place or some, you know, random, you know, fusion yeah. place. Um, yeah. But before that, I would just literally say to the person at the food thing, just put food on my plate and then I would take a photo. So there's about 300 pictures of press box food on my Instagram if you wow. ever want to have a look at it. There's some ugly looking them. meals there, I can tell you that. Yeah, I'm going to go through that. But where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, just Google Jared Kimber. I come up wherever you need me. You're the boss. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have that luck. Uh, so listeners can check me out on at the rate the hustling glutton on Instagram and at the rate ban tofu on Twitter. Check him out. Go there. And uh, look, I had a lot of fun, man. And uh, uh, next time I see you, uh, meals on you. Done. Are you coming here for the World Cup? Don't know. I don't think so. Uh, hmm. I haven't been to India in a very long time, and so. Uh, I would love to go back again. Uh, World Cup's great too because you get to do all the city. So, for instance, Delhi. You're talking about Delhi and the food. I don't know anything about Delhi and the food. I spent two days in Delhi and one of them was on um, was on Holly. So, the whole city was shut down. Um, oh. And so, all I know is that the first day I went there, there was I couldn't breathe. And the second day I went there, it was lovely, but nothing was open. So, that's all I know about Delhi um, at all. And so, you know, as I said, I kind of know a little bit about, I know a lot about the beer cafes of Bangalore and a lot about, you know, uh, you know, the seafood in Chennai and, um, you know, seafood in Kerala and the, uh, the food in Pune. And, you know, I know a lot about the town in Mumbai because all my friends are rich Indians, so they don't leave the town in, uh, yeah. in Mumbai. Yeah. Um, but Delhi, I was like, nothing. You know, I know more about Momos in Dharamashala than I do about deli food. Um, by the way, we didn't talk about that. Momos in Dharamashala is just on a different level. Absolutely brilliant food. <laughs> yeah, it's a pity they uh, moved the test from Dharamashala to Indore. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, w- I would have been, uh, I might have gone. Anyway, mate, I better go, but uh, thanks for having me on the show. Thanks, Jared. And uh, yes, whenever you're in Delhi, uh, your next meal is on me. Done. Cheers, yeah. mate. Cheers, Jared. Thank you so much. Podcast Network.